0: Stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaff. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with the Minnesota Twins legendary play by play announcer Dick Bremer. He has a new book, and we'll be talking about what it's like. Calling games in this strangest of all baseball seasons. But first, will there be a college football season at all? Who knows? What will it take? What kind of safety measures are going to be put into place to protect players, young men in football? And we could extend that to all sports in the fall. The Ivy League's already canceled all fall sports. A few other conferences have followed their lead. The Power Five, not yet. And, and maybe they won't at all. Uh, joining us now is someone who is deeply invested in this issue. He is a seven-time pro bowler, a five-time all-pro offensive lineman, a graduate of Northwestern University. He has two sons playing college football, one at Stanford and one at Michigan, the former all-pro Chris Hinton. Chris, thank you for being with us. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it. So, Chris, um, you have started an organization. You and your wife, Maya, have started an organization. She was a Northwestern athlete as well. Uh, College football parents 24-7. I'm reading a story now in the Chicago Tribune that says it's grown in less than two months to nearly 2,000 parents of athletes. What is the mission for college football parents 24-7, Chris? Well, the
1: the mission is that we want to advocate for the safety and well-being of our sons. And it just so happened um, during the pandemic, um, it, it really um, exposed the the um, what, what we felt like was an issue. And um, so uh, w- we want to keep them safe. Um, we love football. We want a season, but um, we want it to be safe and done smart.
0: Right now, you know this is a hodgepodge. Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, was talking about it himself. You know this has been decentralized. The safety issue at this point to the conferences, to the teams themselves. The NCAA not stepping in with a universal COVID safety protocol uh, for football. Let's talk specifically about football. Um, That seems problematic, and it and it's my understanding, Chris, that that you want to see uniform protocols in place.
1: That's correct. And and that was the one thing that we noticed immediately with our family, with, with um, our parent group was that you talked to 20 different parents and you got 20 different stories as far as how schools were, were handling um, COVID protocol for safety. And um, we felt like somebody, somebody, whether it was conference commissioners, but we had hoped, that the NCAA would mandate um, guidelines that all schools would have to follow in order to proceed. Um, I, I think that's that's not asking for too much, um, but um, what, what we're finding is um, some schools are, are only testing if um, a kid is showing symptoms. Some have protocol for testing once or twice a week, and so it's, it's all across the board, and um, we feel like there should be some type of uniform
0: protocol. Chris, your son, Miles, he'll be a freshman offensive lineman, assuming they're playing at Stanford. Chris Jr. is a sophomore defensive lineman at Michigan. Um, How do you feel right now about their individual situations uh, at Stanford and at Michigan in terms of safety?
1: My wife and I, Maya, we we, we feel like both schools are doing – a commendable job um we we feel like um although it's commendable we're still dealing with a pandemic and think uh, a lot about the disease that we still don't know um we as a as a family and as a parent group we said back in um in early june and in a letter we sent to um President Emmert, it was, um, it's not, um, if it's when, when we have these um, different spikes and when a kid gets, um, tested positive, you know, we don't know long-term effects. And so those are our worries as parents. And so we kind of wear the hat of, of parents of, of two collegiate athletes, but also representing now over 2,200 parents who, who want answers. And so, um, there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of unanswered questions and it, we're still baffled with the fact that this far along that there's no mandated, um, guidelines because guidelines without unenforceable guidelines have have no bite, no, no, no bite in, in um, and forcing schools to adhere
0: to. Yeah, we're just seeing recommendations at this point from the NCAA. We're speaking with Chris Hinton, the great NFL offensive lineman, five-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Pro Bowler. He and his wife, Maya, have created the advocacy group College Football Parents 24-7. And I noticed this um, comment you made in that Chicago Tribune story that I referenced earlier, Chris. Maya and I are huge football fans. We want to see a season but we want it done safely and only if it makes sense. Here we are. We're speaking in late July now. Um, it, can it possibly make sense on a fall timeline?
1: Um, it's, that's, that's a great question. Um, and, and at this point, with, um, with positive cases, not only on campuses, but just in general, in, in the United States, going northward, um, it's, it's it's you get the feeling that we're running into the storm versus running away from the storm as as we ramp into a season, and um, we just uh, we, we want it done smart. We we want our kids safe and. And the reason one, one of the reasons behind our, our, the organization is because when decisions are being made, uh, I don't think there's anybody who's sitting at the table who has the health and welfare of the student athlete in the number one s- slot on their list of, of um, things to, um, address. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of money involved here. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. And, um, and, and those people who are in those decision-making positions, I understand. I mean, I understand their position. Um, there's a lot of money, but understand our position as parents and that we, we, we do parent 24-7 and we don't stop parenting. And we want our kids to be safe.
0: You have a son who's going into what would be his freshman season at Stanford playing offensive line. A son who's going into what would be his sophomore season at Michigan playing on the defensive line, what would happen if your sons told their respective coaches and programs, Hey, you know what? We're just not comfortable with this. We're going to, we'll see you in 2021. What would happen?
1: Well, it's, it's, um, the the NCAA has has said that, and, and most conferences have also said that if a student athlete feels uncomfortable, uh, they can opt out of the season. And still um, maintain their retain their scholarship and, um, and and still attend school, but in and in talking to our parents, all of the parents are in fear of retaliation if 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 a student athlete chooses to step aside, and and that fear is real. Retaliation is real. And so those are the tough decisions that we as parents have to make. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I I hate the fact that it's passed down to the parents to make that decision. And, um, but at some point, if the season proceeds, um, that's a decision that we as a family will sit down and discuss and ultimately, um, our sons will play a big part in in deciding whether they will play the seat.
0: A lot of educators are saying um, uh, if, if students in general aren't on campus, how can we justify bringing in athletes, football players, and others? If we're not going to expose the student body in general to this risk, uh, how can we do it to athletes? There are other schools, such as my alma mater, Cornell. My understanding is they're saying they think, in the big picture, uh, it's less risky to bring all students onto campus. Other schools, of course, have made different decisions um, and are going to be virtual or semi-virtual or just bring in freshmen, etc. What, what if I, I don't know specifically uh, what's going on with Michigan and Stanford as we speak right now, where your sons are are going to be going to school? The, or, or where your sons are in college. Um, how would you feel about football players being at these schools and, and not all those other students?
1: That, that's, that's a dilemma. I think uh, there's arguments on both sides. Would they be safer on a campus with no students? No question about it. Would the optics of that be positive? No. You're saying that it's not safe for students to be back on campus, but it's safe enough where we can bring the football players to generate income revenue for our respective universities. And let's not forget that within the next couple of weeks, the president, university presidents will vote on whether other fall sports will participate, whether the season will be canceled or not. That would really shed light on the optics of you cancel all your other sports, but you don't cancel football. That's, I, I think, what will potentially be a, a pivotal point in this whole this whole fiasco, for lack of a better word. Again,
0: okay, we're speaking with Chris Hinton. Chris, if it, if it were up to you, and I think so many of us now are feeling uh, this sense, with good reason, of powerlessness. Um, that you know, a, a, as as we hear the immunologists and the virologists. And the epidemiologists say, you know, it, it's it's the disease, COVID-19, and the virus, the coronavirus, that is calling the shots. And, and we're in a position mostly of reacting. And we don't have the power. We don't know what's safe. And we don't know... Um, We don't know um, what's going to be best necessarily for our kids, keeping them home uh, if you have younger kids or letting them socialize. And there's a big difference, obviously, it seems based on the science now, a big difference between the way young kids under the age of 10 respond to this virus and those who are older. Um, and we've seen spikes around the country for younger people, people in their 20s um, who might be feeling bulletproof because the death rates are obviously much, much lower for people in that, that age group. Um, but if it were up to you, if you could call the shots, if instead of being powerless, we, you know, you had power here, any of us had power, what, what do you think should be done now?
1: Uh, if, if I could make the calls, um and we were in the midst of a pandemic and the, the the cases were rising um i don't i'm not so sure that i would i would have a season um i i, I live for football I, I think for the well i looked in for the last 50 years i've been directly um uh, involved in football whether it was a coach, as a coach, player, mentor, father, I want to see football, but I wouldn't put money over the safety of the student athlete. Universities, coaches—they're—they're they're the stewards of of our, our our sons once they go away to school, and, and all we ask is that you put their safety first.
0: Your sons, as we mentioned, at Stanford, at Michigan. Um, We hear so much about, you know, the younger cohort, that age group, um, feeling uh, invulnerable. And we know that's not the case, uh, but we also know it does affect them differently, obviously, than older people. How would you characterize the way your sons are approaching their personal safety and the safety of those around them at this point?
1: Well, uh, before they they both went off to school, I mean, we adhered to... To quarantining, we, we adhere to all the, the the guidelines that the CDC recommended on keeping you safe. And with with that being said, we felt like our sons were safer here at home, um, and we encouraged them to do to continue being safe, um, doing the doing the right things. Um, both of our sons um, have. Breathing, asthma issues growing up, um, we travel with a nebulizer, um, lots of breathing treatments. And so that, that's, uh, those are underlying, um, issues. And so we, we stress to them and, and it's, I mean, we, we have sleepless nights worrying about their safety.
0: It's a terrible situation, um, and, and I, I feel for you, Chris. That is, that is a tough conundrum right now. Thank you. We're speaking with Chris Hinton, the legendary NFL offensive lineman, the five-time All-Pro, seven-time Pro Bowler, whose sons, as we've been hearing, are part of this college football world, and we don't know whether there is going to be or whether there should be a season at this point. Chris's group that he has founded, Advocacy Group, with his wife, Maya, is College Football Parents 24-7. If somebody wants to become involved, Chris, with College Football Parents 24-7, how do they do so?
1: The best way is to uh, go to, we're, we're on Twitter, at CF Parents 24-7. And um, they can, from, from there, they'll be able to join. And um, as many voices as we can get, that's our, our purpose, to be one unified voice for parents. Um, and we've got parents from division three schools all the way up to the power fives. And, and one thing that I've learned is that, um, we all share a couple of things. One is the love of our sons. And secondly, we we love football. So we'll, we'll continue pushing forward. And, um, anybody who wants to be a, a part of what we're doing as parents, that'd be great.
0: Chris, before we let you go, one last question occurred to me, and I probably should have asked it earlier, but you spent your life not only in football, but you spent your life in, as they call it in the game, the trenches, where the notion of social distancing or keeping uh, a safe distance from someone is uh, obviously, uh, you know, it's inconceivable. It's the opposite of what uh, the game demands, particularly... On uh, in the trenches, can, can football? You know, we're seeing baseballs back and basketballs. Can football be played in a safe way, or is it just, or is it just about testing and not not having kids on the field um, who have symptoms? And we know there are so many cases they're asymptomatic, especially among the young.
1: It's not possible to, to, to play football and uh, in in a safe way. Is it uh, possible to be safer than? In the way it was played last year, sure, but as far as you you look at some of the guidelines from the c d c you know six feet distancing, no spitting you no breathing no around other people breathing uh expounding droplets that's all done in in one play on the offensive on the offensive line so No, it's not possible.
0: Chris Hinton. Chris, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it.
0: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Baseball, of course, is underway. And for so many people, that is big news. For our next guest, it's not just news and it's not just fun. It's what he does, and does very well, and has done very well for nearly four decades as the play-by-play voice of the Minnesota Twins. His new book is titled Game Used, My Life in Stitches with the Minnesota Twins. It's a pleasure to welcome to the Sporting Life Dick Bremer. Dick, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Jeremy, my pleasure.
0: Dick, before we get to the book, what is it like right now calling games? How are you doing it?
2: Well, we we're doing it remotely. Uh, last night was the first uh, night uh, uh, game I actually saw in person. The Twins uh, opened up the season in Chicago, and we stayed at the Target Field in Minneapolis and uh, did a game, uh, three of them, uh, off of a monitor in our booth which was a unique experience and uh, a lot of people are wondering how that works and I'm still trying to figure <laughs> figure it out myself but we got the games on and that's the most important thing for the viewers it's it's been a you know everybody's who's lucky enough to have a job and, and is able to work has had to adapt to uh, you know whatever the new conditions are so we're we're uh, we're learning on the fly how to do games remotely
0: You know, at a place like ESPN, obviously, they've been doing games remotely, some games remotely, since the beginnings of the network more than 40 years ago, calling soccer games across the world and uh, baseball games across the world, all that kind of stuff. Um, For someone, though, who is accustomed to being there right on top of the action all the time and having done it for so long, this must be disorienting.
2: Uh, that's a good word. Yeah, there's some <laughs> others that I've used. It's 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 uh, it's it's a challenge because you know, particularly I think on TV, because uh, anybody who does this uh, in whatever sport, you're trying to, you know, get some information or some insight uh, to the viewer based on what he or she can't see because they've got an image in front of them. Well, now we're essentially limited to the very images that the that the viewer gets. So we're trying to backfill the broadcast with uh, some insight. Now we do have some, you know, secondary monitors showing some different angles and things like that that the viewer doesn't get. But it's a challenge to try to uh, provide some insight to, to the viewer. And, and really, all we have uh, at our disposal is the image that the viewer already gets on his TV screen.
0: And when you're when you're when the teams at home, is it the same situation?
2: No, we're. Uh, last night was our first game at Target Field, and I was able to see the infield shifts in person and relate that on the broadcast. And uh, you know, within the count, it's now one and two, and Byron Buxton shaded over a couple of steps to right center field. Um, you know, you can see all that, and you can relate that uh, to the viewer. Uh, so it's it's more normal uh we're doing a home game than a road game but even at that there are no fans in the stands and you know when uh, josh donaldson hit a home run there's nobody cheering and the, you can hear the the ball rattling around in the seats. so it, it's all a new experience for everybody
0: how do you think the ambiance of the games is affected and the play is affected and your performance as a broadcaster is affected by the absence of fans
2: well, sure. We get the crowd noise uh, in a normal uh, broadcast. We get the crowd noise in our headsets, and 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 it's it's easy to elevate uh, your volume and excitement when the ball is approaching the wall or headed for the right field corner, or what have you, because the crowd uh, helps you know create the excitement not only for the viewer but for the broadcaster as well. So absent that, we're left with the. You know the artificial fan noise, the white noise that's uh, underlying all the broadcasts these days, and uh, it, it, people have different views of, on that, of course. And I, I don't mind it so much. Some people, you know, think we're trying to pull the wool over uh, their eyes and ears by having that uh, in the background, but I, I don't. I don't think it's offensive, and it maybe adds a little ambiance to an otherwise rather sterile broadcast.
0: We're speaking with Dick Brammer, the longtime Minnesota Twins broadcaster, not just a baseball broadcaster, well-known throughout the Midwest as well for calling uh, hockey, Gophers hockey as well. His new book is Game Used, My Life in Stitches with the Minnesota Twins. And, and Dick, for so many people, certainly people I know, being in this industry, growing up in this industry Baseball play-by-play play is the ultimate goal, the ultimate destination. Was it like that for you?
2: Uh, I really, Jeremy, wasn't uh, unrealistic in my expectations. I never imagined uh, doing that for a living. I just wanted to get into the games for free, so I I took an unconventional route to the to the broadcast booth. Uh, I got into it through uh, television news, but uh, you know, there are so few jobs out there, uh, at the big league level. Uh, I'm fortunate because I've been doing this, as you said, for nearly four decades, uh, following the team that I followed as a kid. And, uh, so i really, I kind of fell into it a long time ago, immediately fell in love with it, but never imagined that, that someday, uh, I'd be, you know, broadcasting games for the team I followed as a kid. I, I've been very, very blessed
0: that way. In the book uh, it's an interesting device. It's divided into nine innings and 108 stitches, which is, of course, how many stitches there are on a baseball. Um, why did you decide to tell your story in this uh, anecdotal way?
2: Well, I wanted to, to first of all, I kind of had to have my arm twisted. I, I never imagined that I'd write a book, but the uh, the folks at Triumph Books in Chicago have been were very accommodating and kind of letting me... Uh, do the book the way I wanted to. I wanted it to be a self-deprecating book because if you've listened to any of uh, my broadcasts, I don't take myself too seriously. I take my job seriously, but not myself too seriously. Uh, so I thought I wanted to to have a book that uh, would be memorable. I think anybody who ever authors a book wants that. But I also wanted one that would be easy to pick up and hard to put down. <laughs> and so to do that, it's you know I I, I wanted short stories. Uh, So if someone just was, you know, waiting for five minutes or something and they wanted to read a a stitch or two or a story or two, they could do that and then uh, put it down and get on with uh, their business, uh, uh, whatever that is in the day, during the day. And so it was kind of a unique format. A long time ago, when I was a kid, I I had a book that I probably read about 20 times, and it was Bill Stern's favorite stories or baseball stories or something like that. and and. I read that and read that and read that. That was kind of the format that Bill Stern used for his book that I read, and maybe subconsciously I thought that was kind of a unique way to write a book.
0: We're speaking again with Dick Bremer. He's been calling Minnesota Twins baseball games for almost four decades. His new book is "Game Used: My Life in Stitches with the Minnesota Twins," and of course, this is a memoir. It's not just stories about baseball, as interesting as they may be. And you grew up; you were born in Saint Paul. In the big city, but raised in smaller towns, and and your your father was a Lutheran minister who specialized in ministering to the deaf. Um, what was it like growing up in that in that environment?
2: Well, I one of my great regrets is that I did not learn sign language. Both my father and my mother uh, uh, spoke, if you will, communicated in sign language because my dad had to and my mother learned it along the way. Uh, I wish I had uh, taken the time to learn it. It's a lot easier to learn something when you're younger, but uh, I remember you know, watching my father preach both uh, uh, vocally and through sign language. A couple of times I actually saw him uh, do that uh, simultaneously when he had a, a mixed congregation, and I, I have no idea how... I have a hard enough time communicating in one language. I don't know how you can do Uh, do it uh, (laughs) with with two languages simultaneously. So it was a unique experience, but again, within that, I I wish I had learned the language whenever I go through an airport or I'm at a restaurant and I see people communicating in sign language. I I wish I had learned because I'd love to be able to communicate with them.
0: Well, Dick, best of luck throughout this unprecedented and strange season. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Dick Bremmer's new book is Game Used, My Life in Stitches with the Minnesota Twins four decades calling twins games i don't want to jump the gun where it's not quite four decades but we're close 37 years dick thanks so much for spending this time with us jeremy good to talk to you this is the sporting life on espn radio and the espn app of course there is not going to be a Summer Olympics this year. In fact, they'd be taking place now if they were taking place on schedule, but they have been postponed. The hope is that they will be able to take place in Tokyo in the summer of 2021. But even that is up in the air. And of course, The change in plans has upended lives for so many athletes, so many people hoping to participate at the Olympic Games. Among them, our next guest, one of America's all-time greats in diving, an Olympic gold medalist in the platform event. We welcome to the show Laura Wilkinson. Laura, thank you for being with us.
3: Uh, Thanks for having me on.
0: So, Laura, your story, among all these stories about the delayed Olympics and whether it's going to benefit or it's going to make it harder for some people to keep training and keep doing what they're doing is among the most interesting because you're going for your fourth Olympics. You were in the Games in 2000, 2004, and 2008. You retired, did not participate in 12 or 16, but you made a comeback. You started coming back in the fall of 2016. And uh, it's been a remarkable comeback, uh, but there have been ups and downs. You had surgery in December 2018, but you were very much in the Olympic picture at this point, uh, even though, and I hate to say it, you're 42. This is <laughs> this is a remarkable story. Um, how would you say you're doing right now, since the the whole timeline has been moved out another 12 months minimum?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think like everybody else, it's, it's just up and down right now uh for me honestly it's been a gift um and it's funny to me saying that as a 42 year old mom of four i'd like an extra year please you know it's kind of a funny feeling but since i I did come back from the two level cervical fusion um pretty much all of 2019 i just started competing again early this year and so just you know kind of like scraping and clawing and trying to get my way back having a whole year you know hopefully to get my dives back off to get confident again that to me is a gift however We got back in the pool this summer and then have now been kicked out again as one of the athletes has tested positive. So it's just really this kind of up and down game at the moment.
0: Not only the mother of four, but the mother of four kids, at least when the Washington Post published a story in April, four kids, nine and younger, or under the age of nine. Um, It seems like uh, you know so many of us... um, You know, with homeschooling and everything that's going on right now, the idea of also trying to stay focused on competing at and qualifying for the Olympics seems like uh, it's just impossible. How are you doing it? (laughs) Well,
3: you know, we like I think impossible is a dare. I love that old Muhammad Ali quote. It's just a dare. (laughs) Um, I I mean. Everything seems hard when you first start. Like when I had one kid, I thought that was really hard. When I had two kids, I thought that was really hard. Now I've got four kids. I'm training for the Olympics and I work. So it just gets
0: easier, right? They take care of each other. You don't have to do anything no, anymore. No,
3: it still is hard. <laughs> don't get me wrong. It just you, you start to learn how to juggle really well, and somebody's always up in the air. That's kind of how it goes. You know you. You drop the ball sometimes and that happens, but you pick it up and and you just get going best you can again. Like you just have to like have a little more grace with yourself um, and kind of just be able to roll with the punches a little better, which I think makes me a better athlete as well. So I think it's actually kind of made me stronger mentally and emotionally that way. So it's not all bad and not all hard. (laughs)
0: Laura Wilkinson won the gold in platform in Sydney in the year 2000. That is 20 years ago. She has been trying to make a return to Olympic-level competition for the last four years. It's going to be, at minimum, a five-year process. Um, diving is one of those sports, though, uh, where it's about the accretion of, how do we put it, insults on the body, the cumulative effect of all of that pounding on your shoulders, especially. Um, you know, we have seen... Um, older divers be successful, but it is certainly anomalous. Uh, how would you describe the toll all those dives have taken on your body over the course of 30 plus years?
3: Yeah, that was really well said. Um, it is definitely like an accumulation of just being beat down because you hit the water at 35 miles an hour. Cause everybody's like, Oh, you're going into water, but water feels like concrete at that kind of speed. And obviously it took a toll on my neck. I, I thought for years I just had tricep issues and come to find out probably a decade after it started that it was all coming from two vertebrae in my neck. So I actually have a titanium plate in my neck now kind of holding me back together. Um,
0: yeah. How, how is it possible that someone in a sport in which we see neck injuries so frequently would let it go 10 years without properly diagnosing it?
3: we didn't know that's what it was. I, all my symptoms were in my arm. My neck has never bothered me. And so, you know, we were treated sometimes, and and this is, it's very common. I had a friend who had four shoulder surgeries, finally found out it was a neck issue. So it's not uh, unusual to to just have it be missed because the injuries we have, there there are other injuries and it's just kind of connected. So, um, we finally were able to piece it all back together, but you know, I wasn't diving for a long part of that time too. So it, it just took a little extra time to figure out, but Honestly, it's kind of a new road. I was able to wear an orthofix bone stimulator to kind of get back in and heal back up quickly. And so I, I feel really good. Um, but it has been a wild ride. I don't know anybody else who's done this after that kind of surgery, um, especially at this you know, lovely, um, distinguished age, but it, it's fun because it's a journey that I, I don't know anyone else has taken. And for me, that's, that's a fun, new and adventure and challenge in and of itself, you know, but getting through this next year as a whole other trial, because I know there are many athletes that might've been in the same boat as me, that this was going to be it. And then we we're going to move on. Maybe they had just enough sponsorships to cover them or, um, you know, they're going to finish school and try to get a job and move on. And so now there's like this financial issue too, for everybody trying to push out a year. And a lot of companies are now not sponsoring because obviously, you know, work has been affected by all this COVID stuff. So it's kind of a different world. And I love that there's this organization giving games that they're helping um, do like fundraising for all of these sports that have come together where you can donate to a sport specifically or just in a general fund that will help athletes like myself continue to train through next year. So if you go to giving-games.com, you can find out more about that. It's a really cool program.
0: That was a good plug. We're speaking with Laura Wilkinson, the Olympic gold medalist, the three-time Olympian, 2000, 2004, 2008, hoping for a comeback in 2021 when she will be 43 years old and is now a mother of four. The way you train now, um, it, it, at this age, um how does it compare to the way you trained when you were a teenager?
3: Um, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Um, I think the biggest thing now is I can still put in the same hours, but I don't recover the same. So to help my recovery, I've actually shortened my hours a little bit. I, I don't always do the two-a-day trainings. I'll just do more like one long session. Um, I still do a lot of dry land training, like where we do our somersaults, our flips. I do a lot more stretching. I do things like cryotherapy. I go to physical therapy once a week just to make sure, you know, we're staying on top of nagging injuries, things like that. So I'm really trying to focus more on recovering and taking care of my body so that I can use my mind and my experience um, and really optimize my physical performance all together.
0: Have you ever done the math? Have you ever counted up approximately, (laughs) I know you can't be exact, how many times You've made that dive from 30, what is it, 35 feet up in the air, um, 33 feet up in the air into the water with that kind of impact?
3: You know, I haven't, but now I feel like this is a challenge. So I'm going to go back and get my calculator out and try to figure that out. But I mean, yeah, I've, I've been doing 10 meter since I was 15 years old. I did it from 15 to 30. Then I took like a nine-year break, and I got back up on top um, in 2017. So yeah, I don't know. It's been a lot, it's been a lot of repetitions from that high.
0: So even if you don't make the team, if you're not back at the games, this will have been worthwhile. You think?
3: Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't have kept going if that wasn't, you know, it's it's what I love to do. It's what I feel called to do. It's what I feel like I'm made for, and just doing it fills me up. You know what I mean? It just really kind of completes me and it makes me feel better and, and more productive in my life outside of the pool. It's just, you know, when you find that thing you love and you, you want to do it as much as you can, and it's poured out into other things. I created an online course to help coach athletes on the mental side. I now run a podcast called The Pursuit of Gold, where I'm talking to other amazing athletes and experts and coaches about what has made them so successful. And, and it's that all of that is helping me in my athletics bike, but it's also helping me help others. And that's something I want to continue to do when I'm done diving. And those avenues probably wouldn't have been open if I hadn't gotten back in the water.
0: The 2000 Olympic games, gold medalist in platform diving, also a gold medalist at the 2004 world cup and 2005 world championships. Laura Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life, and good luck as you continue this journey, we hope, back to the Olympic Games.
3: Thank you so much. I hope to see you in Tokyo.
0: Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.